I'm Ed Randall, and you're listening to Baseball and Barbecue. This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Welcome to episode number 50 of Baseball and Barbecue. I'm here with my co-host, Jeff Cohen. And I'm here with my co-host, Len Eberman. And this is number 50. For for us, this is actually one episode past our anniversary episode. We release, usually we release an episode every two weeks. Yes, we do. So you may be wondering, wait a second, didn't they just release their anniversary episode? But we wanted to get this episode out as quickly as possible for a number of reasons. The first and probably the most important being we interviewed Gene Fruth and Jeff Idelson. We'll go into a little bit of who they are. They, ha- they have a book. Gene Fruth is a photographer, right. a, fa- a phenomenal photographer. Called Grassroots Baseball, Where Legends Begin. And in the book, there are essays by a lot of Hall of Famers. Yes. For a, to- a short time, up until January 4th, they are giving the proceeds from the sales of this book, the autographed copies, to support... Uh, Ump's the- Cares Charities. Right. Ump's Cares Charities. We just wanted to get this out. Normally, this would probably come out after January 4th, and we wanted to make sure that everybody had the opportunity since you're going to buy this book anyway, you might as well have the proceeds go to a great cause. Absolutely. And this book is full of fantastic, unbelievable pictures that is just breathtaking. So we should talk about a little bit about Gene Fruth and Jeff Idelson. Now, Gene Fruth covered the Giants and the A's for about 10 years and then she started taking photos for the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown, New York, where she helped to build the museum's profile and photo archive by contributing her work to that institution over a three-year period. And I suggest to go on to genefruithimages.com. Take a look at these photographs. Like I said, they were breathtaking. There are several links you can click on. Baseball postseason, baseball sacred grounds, World Series rings, baseball Cuba, baseball Dominican Republic, baseball Mexico, Japan. Take a look at these. They're just fantastic. And then Jeff Idelson. Jeff Idelson, yes. Okay. He has been in baseball for his career 33 years. For the last 25, has been with the Baseball Hall of Fame. Last quarter century. Right. And then the last 11 years, he was the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was the one who introduced the new Hall of Famers at the induction ceremonies as part as other jobs or, or what he was running at the Hall of Fame. And this year, he retired. He did the induction ceremony in July. Yes. And after shortly after that, he retired. And got together with Gene Fruth to form Grassroots Baseball. And it's more than just the book, as you'll hear from the interview. It's a movement. Grassroots Baseball is the book, and it's a movement to bring baseball, I guess, to to the masses and, and to, to 
Also, to promote it in areas where these kids may not have the opportunity to be on traveling teams or to pay all this money for Little League or things like that. Right. Well, their website, which is grassrootsbaseball.com, it says promoting and celebrating the amateur game around the globe. That basically says it all. Right. Then, after the interview with Jeff and Gene, we're also going to have... A great interview with none other than Aaron Stouffer, who is the head pitmaster of Man Meat Barbecue. Oh, cool. And that was fun. We talked to Aaron all about his role in barbecue. Uh, he's on a competition team. They do quite amazing. Uh, I happened to find him on Facebook and was very curious about everything that he's doing with barbecue, and I think you're really going to enjoy that as well. So episode 50 is really shaping up to be a big one. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. Yes. And so far now, let's listen to Jeff Idelson and Gene Fruth. So welcome to Baseball and Barbecue. I think you guys are really going to love this episode. We have two very special guests with us tonight. The first is Gene Fruth. She's a true artist. Her breathtaking photos convey her passion for the game of baseball and so much of what it encompasses from the perspective of a photographer as well as a true baseball enthusiast. One look through her photos and you cannot help but feel the love she has for the game. Our other guest, Jeff Idelson, has dedicated the last 33 years of his career to baseball, the last 11 of which have been spent as president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum in Cooperstown, New York. Together, they form Grassroots Baseball. Welcome to the podcast, Gene Fruth and Jeff Idelson. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Glad to be with you guys. So the, the reason that you're here, of course, is you're promoting a book. And if I could just, if, if I could just fawn over you guys for just a moment... You have put together a book. Gene, this book is one of the most beautiful books on baseball that I've ever had the pleasure of reading. The photos are breathtaking. It's just absolutely fantastic. And it is called it is called uh, Grassroots Baseball, Where Legends Begin by Gene Fruth. I, I wanna, there's so many questions that we have about this book. Uh, so, Jeff, please... Start us out. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Glenn. Before I ask the question, Jeff, I met you at the 75th anniversary of the Hall of Fame on June 12, 2014 with Cal Ripken and Phil Negro. It was a, it was a great day. Yeah, it sure was. That, uh, thinking back, boy, that's uh, five years ago now, but Hall of Fame is now 80, and uh, I remember the 75th well. We had a lot of great activities that summer. It was, it was great, yes. The next time I met you was this past January at Sabre Day at New York City, in January, and I really enjoyed your presentation and discussion. Oh, thank you. I mean, you know, Sabre has an important role in, in baseball and helping to make sure the history is uh, recorded properly, and anytime there's an opportunity to connect with uh, the Sabre, a Sabre group, I love doing it, especially in New York. It was great. And Gene, although I never met you, I've seen your photography and a, a great work of art. Just fantastic. And, and oh, while I'm sure you, you so heard much. it before, you never get tired of hearing it. <laughs> Very kind of you. Gene, you know, the only thing that I want to do with the book, before we get to the book, but is that I wish the pages were perforated, not because I want to destroy the book, but there were so many pictures in that book that I would like to take out and frame uh, for my home. <laughs> they're, they're just, they're... Thank you so much. So my, my question uh, is, uh, what was the inspiration for you two to collaborate on this book and the overall grassroots baseball movement? Well, when um, for my job, I shoot Major League Baseball and professional baseball. And as I was traveling the world shooting professional baseball, I always took time to shoot the amateur game, the grassroots game. So if I was in Japan shooting the World Baseball Classic, I would peel off and try to shoot some Little League games in Tokyo. Or if I was in the Dominican Republic shooting Winter League, I would take time to shoot kids playing baseball on the streets, sandlots in Mexico, old guys playing stickball in the streets of New York City. And that collection of images um, really had never been been seen before. 
And then during my tenure with the Baseball Hall of Fame as their traveling photographer, um, I had the opportunity to connect with Jeff, meet a lot of the Hall of Famers during induction, projects that the Hall of Fame gave me to work with Hall of Famers, and I got to hear their stories of what it was like in their early days of playing baseball, where they're from, and um, the stories were just wonderful, and that's when I came up with the idea to connect these wonderful stories with my images of the grassroots game, uh, and then Jeff and I collaborated, and he helped me connect with the Hall of Famers, uh, make introductions for me um, where I needed them, and Grassroots Baseball Where Legends Begin became, that was the first step in our project, was, was this book. So for, for anyone who hasn't gotten the book yet, and I know after this interview, uh, we're going to be like Oprah and your sales are going to go up to number one. Um, <laughs> each, each chapter starts, well, the book starts with a forward by Steve Wolf, which I'd like to get to, uh, but the, all the other chapters start with one of the players, most of them Hall of Famers, some future Hall of Famers. Um, You've got Hank Aaron, Craig Biggio, Johnny Bench, Wade Boggs, Whitey Ford, Vladimir Guerrero, Ricky Henderson, Randy Johnson. I mean, I, I'm, I know I'm leaving some out, but it talks about where they're from. And then there's pictures. So you've, uh, you've got Cuba, you've got Japan, you've got Curacao, you've got uh, Mobile, Alabama, you have the Dominican Republic, you've got New York, Cape Cod. And one of the things that I noticed about, they all write these incredible essays about growing up and how they wanted to be major leaguers. You know one of the things that is amazing about each one? None of them came from homes of privilege. It seems like all of them came from such humble beginnings. You know, they all talked about whether it was taping rocks together, using a stick, making makeshift games. It's amazing that that they all these players came from such humble beginnings. Well, you know, it, I think the common theme among them all is passion too. Is that uh, you know, you're right. A lot of them had humble beginnings or, or not much, but the common theme among these guys was a passion for the game. And I think that's what really shines through in the essays. Are they all got uh, to where they are in life and in, the, in baseball and in the majors in different ways? But the common threads were perseverance, passion, uh, and, and strong community support. You know, I was reading on your website, uh, grassrootsbaseball.com, and anybody listening out there, take a look at this. You can see some of the pictures, great stories. You went on a tour through Route 66, which stops in Illinois, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arizona, New Mexico. Tell us about the tour and the Hall of Famers who participated. Well, I guess I could start, Gene, but it, uh, if you'd like, the, the, the tour was, it, it was twofold. Um, it's about documenting and promoting the amateur game, which, uh, you know, Gene obviously does so beautifully through grassroots baseball where legends begin, and this is an extension of that, and showing how the, the kids' game is played across America in a lot of, un, uh, you know, a, a lot of forgotten towns and, and, and uh, small towns. And it was also about giving back uh, in underprivileged communities and in those areas to help grow the game. And we use guys like George Brett and Trevor Hoffman. Goose Gossage was our national spokesman. Jim Tomey, Ozzie Smith, Johnny Bench, and these uh, these Hall of Famers came in, along with guys like uh, uh, Billy Hatcher and Bob Shirley, who were local legends, uh, Billy in Arizona along Route 66, and Bob in Oklahoma along Route 66, and sort of like the concept of the book, come in and explain, look, hey, I grew up in this area, or I came from humble beginnings, and I was no different than you, and, uh, you know, explaining that if you follow your passion and uh, whether it's baseball or otherwise, all you need is, is a bit of an opportunity. And so by bringing these folks in, these great luminaries, to share their story and then have them present each child with their own brand-new Rawlings glove, Rawlings baseball, and learn how to play the game of catch was impactful. Yeah, I actually, if you go on the website, you can go see some of these videos. I remember seeing the one with George Brett talking to the kids, giving out the, uh, the gloves. Uh, is, is one of the... One of the intention is to grow the game to get the young boys and girls back into baseball. Yeah, our, the grassroots after after the book launched, or even before the book was as the book was being launched, um, the idea was you know, let's make grassroots you know bigger than this book and launch it as 
you know, its own entity and as a project. So Jeff and I became partners at that point. And the mission of grassroots baseball is to promote and to celebrate the amateur game really around the globe. And the idea is the focus is on growing the interest and the participation at the youngest levels, which is where we're we're losing participation, you know, in some places. So uh, we started Grassroots Baseball, and it's a give-back program, and our plan is to continue to grow it. We started on Route 66 because we thought, what a great place to start. It's so Americana, and there's so many small towns, forgotten towns. And that's kind of the point is baseball can be played anywhere. And, you know, now in the days with you talked about the simple and humble beginnings of those Hall of Famers and legends in the book, Well, today, you know, the playing field has really changed for kids. There's travel ball, there's private lessons, and those are great for the kids that are able to afford it and wonderful that they get those kind of uh, privileges. But there's also then the kids that are left behind that can't compete because they can't pay for travel ball and they, you know, they're they're certainly not going to pay for private lessons. And the idea is is to put a glove, put a ball in a kid's hand early on and get them to get excited about the game. What got those Hall of Famers in the book? What was why was Vladimir Guerrero excited about baseball? You know, why was Johnny Bench, you know? Sure they they had their heroes on T V for Major League Baseball, Mickey Mantle, but it was the passion for playing the game from a very young age and and uh, that's what grassroots baseball is about. It's trying to provide inspiration and instruction and equipment to help, you know, ensure more children have the opportunity to learn and play and enjoy the game. Gene, you have over 250 photos in this book. What's your? Do you have a favorite? And also, is there a moment that you took a picture where it didn't turn out how you expected? Not the picture itself, but like it was just a moment that. Your best moment, I guess, of of all these. If you could well, there, a moment that didn't turn out is actually very funny. It was in New York City, and I I saw an old photo from a long time ago. Of, on the Lincoln Tunnel, there's a baseball field, um, and it's a high school field. And I wanted to shoot that field from a helicopter. I thought, how cool would it be, this baseball field with all these, you know, traffic going through the Lincoln Tunnel. And I just thought that is going to be just terrific, you know, for for the New York chapter. You know, the idea uh, behind the book is baseball looks different in different places. So a sense of place and, you know, baseball in New York City is such an urban jungle. And so I went in this helicopter and what I didn't realize is, yes, the field was there, but it, it, now it's a multi-use field. So there's like football and the track, and there's, it was not the quaint little baseball field mm-hmm. that the, from the photo from the 70s that I saw. So, but the great thing that came out of it was I asked the helicopter to swing by at Yankee Stadium, and I made a shot of Yankee Stadium that I'd never made f- before from the air, and uh, that yeah. ended up making it into the book. and. It was. Uh, it ended up being terrific. So um, I was very happy with how that turned out. Sometimes, uh, you know, you you set out for one thing and you have a plan, and then uh, a new plan um, becomes a better one with a better idea. So that, that that's great. You know, you remind me of, of. I have a photo of the new Yankee Stadium and the old Yankee Stadium being built uh, when when the new New Yankee Stadium was being built. A friend of mine who's a construction photographer was in a helicopter and, and took a photo of both stadiums. And I, I think that was pretty cool. So I, I can imagine yeah, what you go. It's really cool. And now that little field, which is why it was so important to include it in the book, where the old Yankee Stadium was, you know, they have that little, you know, field that kids play yeah. on. It's so grassroots next to, you know, big, you know, Yankee sta- Stadium. So I love, like, where it starts and where it could go. So that photo ended up being terrific. I'd say another one of my favorites is uh, there's a shot um, in the Mobile, Alabama chapter, and, and there's five Hall of Famers from Mobile, Alabama. And though it's not a hotbed of baseball now, obviously it was a hotbed of baseball then. And the childhood home of Hank Aaron, which is still there, and it was moved and it's preserved as a little museum next to a minor league ballpark, I asked four um, historically black high school baseball teams to come to the Hank Aaron house 
in full uniform and pose at his house, and it's a tribute to Hank and everything that he, you know, went through as a player in those early days, you know, starting in the Negro Leagues and just all the adversity he faced, you know, through his career. And these kids, you know, in Mobile um, at these high schools are also facing their own challenges. And it ended up being just an important photo. We left Hank's rocking chair empty in respect for him and, when I look at that photo, it just means so much to me, and it's amazing it came together because it was raining every day, and the kids had games and practices, and they all showed up on that one day, and we were able to make that picture. And That's great. No, two great. of my favorite ball players come from Mobile, Tommy Agee and Cleon Jones. So uh, being Mets fans, they, uh, they, they came from Mobile, and two of my favorites. Uh, before we forget, we want to tell you, go, you can get the book. You can go to grassrootsbaseball.com. You can get the book. And Jeff, I believe it's if you buy it soon, it, it's part of a charity, right? Um, Cares charity. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, we're uh, where we can. Uh, Gene and I try to give back with the book as well, and we're uh, between, between now and uh, early January, I believe, the fourth. Uh, we have books signed by Hall of Famers at the website, and uh, when you purchase a book uh, that's signed by one of the Hall of Famers, the proceeds will go to Umpscare, uh, which is the official charity of, of uh, the umpires of Major League Baseball who take care of at-risk kids. And you can get a Cal Ripken or a Randy Johnson, Pudge Rodriguez, Tony Perez, Vladimir Guerrero, Wade Boggs. Uh, so all kinds of books for sale uh, at grassrootsbaseballbook.com, again, with the Umps Care being the beneficiary uh, of the sales of the books. That's great. And I, I think I've, I saw on the website that you're planning a second book called B- Grassroots Baseball Route 66. Yeah, so that's, we're in the middle of that now. Our first season was going through and doing the clinics with kids in the Hall of Famers. I'll go back this season and continue to shoot and it takes time to make a book, obviously, but Grassroots Baseball Route 66 is next on the horizon. Hi, uh, Gene and Jeff. This is Gary, and uh, I have one question. With the recent announcement by Major League Baseball with the the idea that they want to contract the minor leagues, uh, it seems to me that this would make the grassroots uh, level baseball even more important as we move on, if, in fact, they do do that. Well, either way, the grassroots game is so important in terms of bringing more of the athletes into the sport. It's hard to know where they'll end up with that uh, plan with Major League Baseball and the minors. But, uh, you know, as Gene uh, mentioned, that the opportunity is dwindling, Gary, mm-hmm. uh, because of, of travel ball for a lot of kids. And uh, what we can do and others are doing are making sure that everybody has that opportunity. But more than ever, the grassroots game is important. Gene, Somebody wanted me to ask you this, um, the person you met at the book signing. And they want to know, how do you know, almost like when a hitter uh, knows how to swing at a pitch, how do you know that exact moment to take that photo? There, you have to have an, a special eye to take the photo. What, what, do, you, what do you look for when you, when you take these photos, or is it different every time? Well, that's a great question. Of course, it depends on what I'm setting out to do or what the plan is, and having a plan is is uh, is you know most important. Um, so when I go to a ballpark, I always get there early. If it's a grassroots project, um, then I'm taking a look at my background, and I'm always wanting to show a sense of place. I mean, I shoot game action. Um, and I do that all the time, and it's very exhilarating. But more than game action is being able to tell the story. And telling the story is a little more tricky than game action. It's being able to show the sense of place and tell the story of what's happening and showing that baseball looks very different in different places. So the first thing I'm doing is scouting and looking at my background. And if I'm in Mobile, Alabama, and there's a beautiful old church, well, how great would that be if that's in my background? Or if you're in Pittsburgh and you can get those bridges, well, then terrific. You know, so whatever it is that shows, if you're in Texas and there's a big you know, bar- Texas barbecue sign, like, I'll take it. Let's use that, you know, for, for a background. But So giving a sense of place whenever you can. Uh, and then just being ready for what, what it is that you're looking to accomplish. You know, if you're looking for at-game action and you're paying attention to the game, and obviously the more you shoot the game, uh, the more you know it, the more consistently you're going to get the shots. And then it's paying attention and knowing baseball. So, I mean, 
baseball is the same, whether you're shooting major leagues or little kids, you know, it's, you know, when there's a chance of a play at the plate or there's a chance of a double, a double play at second. So you pay attention to those opportunities for game action. And then besides, you know, besides knowing the game and the game action, then it's just looking for different angles to make a picture that, you know, you haven't made before or that you haven't seen before and uh, creating something new. I, I um, spend a lot more time now planning for making a great picture instead of taking 2,000 of them. I'd rather make one more iconic shot is the goal than, than uh, 2,000 images. So well, that's, that's my plan. Your pictures are, like I said, incredible. You have your own website, and I've, I've looked through it. One of my favorite pictures uh, on the Pro Bowl level is your picture of Noah Syndergaard after a follow-through. That's just so that's so great. What a great picture. Oh, yeah. He makes great pictures, too. And the hair. Well, he cut the hair now, right? I think his no, hair is No, the ground cut the hair. He, uh, Noah still has the locks. <laughs> okay, he does. Yeah, great. Yeah, I love the hair. Yeah. But sure. And then you get to know that athlete and how they look. You know, there's certain, I mean, there's players where their swing, their follow-through is the prettiest part of their swing. You know, or maybe, you know, if they, or if you know that their head is going to be down when they're hitting the ball, you might want to get a different angle. So you get to know the athlete. And then pitching, you know, it looks different, obviously, depending on how they pitch. Are you going to shoot them straight on, or is it better to get their follow-through? And um, that just comes with time and uh, seeing the athlete and shooting the athlete enough to, to get to know what he does. But they do the same thing over and over again, and, you know, that's what athletes do, right? They repeat themselves. Gene, you took pictures in so many different places, uh, countries, um, and then, of course, throughout the United States. Two parts to this. One, what is the most uh, – baseball is baseball, but what's part that's different, the most different parts of the country? And then what's the, the thing that's the same? Yeah, I mean, the, for, you know, the culture, I mean, when you go to Japan and you see the tremendous respect that the kids – or, or adult players are, you know, have for their coaches, have for the umpires. I mean, at the end of every Little League game in Japan, they line up and they bow in unison to the umpires and the umpires bow back. And, you know, just the, the fan experience, the culture experience, so different from, say, the Dominican Republic or Mexico compared to Japan. So those cultural differences are, you know, vast. So that's, you know, that's fun to see, you know, and what, uh, what you're going to experience is so different, say, in Cuba, um, where, I mean, every game, every, every, every game is full. Every game looks like a, a playoff game, and it's just a typical night. Same thing in the Dominican Republic. I mean, the stands are, are filled. You know, you, you would think that you're at the World Series, and it's just a, a Friday night at the ballpark. Um, so the passion uh, for the game, I would say, very different. The Latin countries, obviously, they're much bigger in celebration. You know, a home run, you know, they all empty out of the dugout to celebrate. And, of course, that's different here. And sometimes that culture might be frowned upon in a different area. But it's really just a cultural difference to be, you know, celebrated. And I think it, what makes the game fun is that all these cultures come together and play Major League Baseball. And you think it, it makes it uh, enjoyable for the fans, really. The website is grassrootsbaseball.com. Jeff, I want to ask you about your career as a little leaguer in Newton, in Newton Central <laughs> Little League. <laughs> well, so that's a grassroots baseball. How do you do? No, it's, uh, we've already discussed it. <laughs> no, I, uh, uh, it, listen, I mean, I loved youth baseball. It was a big part of my life, you know, starting at age five when you could first uh, sign up and uh, – you know, I peaked and was done by age 12, like so many kids in this country. And uh, but uh, you know, it taught me the values, and it taught me it taught me the values of teamwork, about uh, preparation, about being on time, um, all the things that uh, we're trying to now impart on young kids, or what was impart- imparted on me when I was young, and it made a difference. You know, uh, you know, I, I love the Lily. Lily. I, I went through it. I'm like millions of other kids. My my boy went through it. He went to a, a local travel ball where he really he didn't really travel that much he, in the local area. Now he's a one of the student managers for Arizona State University, so he he still loves the game. He practices with Arizona State. Even though he's not not going to be, be on the team, he just loves being around it. You know how great? Yeah, just loves being around it. Before we let you go, Jeff, I have to ask you a, a, a 
question about the Hall of Fame. You retired after 25 years of service, last 11 as president. Aside from the Hall of Fame inductions, can you tell us some of the most satisfying accomplishments that you were involved with the Hall of Fame? I, I think just the overall build of the museum over time uh, was, is, is a great accomplishment that, uh, you know, that we, as an organization we did to, I think, make it what it is today. It's, uh, when you go to Cooperstown now versus, uh, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, it's a lot more interactive. It's a lot more experiential. You have Hall of Famers coming. And it's really a, a very lively place to be. And I think I take great pride in uh, being part of a group that uh, took the Hall of Fame and, and continued to make it relevant all these years later. We sp- you know, we spent, about 10 years ago, Jeff and I spent a weekend in Cooperstown. It was uh, in, in February. Ge- yeah. January, February. It was right. cold. But, and uh, <laughs> so the, the town was pretty empty, but the Hall of Fame, and the, the Hall of Fame was empty too. But we had a guy, his name was Roger. The docent who showed us around. Yeah. And, and we spent two full days. We, he, he took some of the equipment out. I think he took out, uh, you guys get equipment from the teams. He took uh, the Toronto Blue Jays had sent catching equipment, and I put that on. And, and we had a, a tour guide for the day. Uh, I felt like we should give him a big tip at the end of the day, and he couldn't have been any nicer. Yeah, uh, we just had we read every single plaque and just every exhibit, and it was it was fantastic. Well, that's think- great to hear. Roger, Roger McMillan's been there a long time. He's a retired surgeon in Bassett and wanted to stick around and help with the Hall of Fame. And he'll sort baseball cards, contract cards, and uh, loves making sure that every visitor's experience is very personal. And, you know, a lot of the um, non-game-used equipment we get, uh, such as the stuff you were able, or that they get, I shouldn't say we, I'm not there anymore, but not a lot of the non-game-used equipment that comes in that are samples are great ways for um, fans to understand what it, what it feels like to be a major leaguer and where the things that uh, the major leaguers wear. So that's nice to hear. I'm glad you had such a positive experience. I think that the game of baseball, it's incredible what you're doing, that you're dedicating yourselves to making the game with the youth and, and, and everything that you're doing. There is definitely people that love baseball. It's just, it's a deep love. You really do. Once you once you get hooked on this game, I mean, it just you can't, ex- there, you can't explain yeah, it. it. There's no explanation for it. It's just a deep love. Doesn't matter what team you root for. It doesn't matter. It, it could be a minor league team, whatever. But there's something about baseball that once you get hooked in, it, it's forever. I think we'd both agree. I mean, I got hooked in at age five, and a half century later, I'm still hooked in. It's also the culture of baseball just runs so much deeper than other sports. I mean, just the, I mean, how it connects generations. I mean, the Hall of Fame is a perfect example of that when you see grandfather, father, and son all walking around through the museum. And um, just we're heading to Puerto Rico. I'm going to shoot the Caribbean series next month, and we'll do a clinic with Pudge Rodriguez. And in the book, if you can find it, there's three sort of three generations. There's Pudge is in the book, obviously, as you know, but Derek Rodriguez, his son, is in the book in one of the chapters. And then also, very little brother uh, is somewhere in there. He's not captioned, but you could find him. Um, but it just runs deep. And, you know, Pudge's father was you know, involved in the game, his brother. You know, it's just these generations. Look at Vladdy and Vladdy Jr. And on every level, I think, no matter if you're a fan or, or a player, I think it just really... It's a bond that creates memories, and, and that's, that's the difference, you know. That sport, that's what grabs you, is, is the culture and, and the memories, and you remember where you are, and you remember who you were with, and when your dad took you to, you know, your first game, and I think that's what makes uh, uh, baseball so special, and grassroots baseball, you know, so very near and dear to so many people's hearts. It's, it's just fantastic. Again, the book is called Grassroots Baseball. Go to grassrootsbaseball.com. Purchase the book. Some of the proceeds go to Ump's Cares. The charity. The charity. And you, you guys, Jeff, Gene, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you very much. You, anything else you want to say about the uh, grassroots baseball? Is, is, it, is this going to be a series of books coming out? Yeah, the plan is to continue it, to grow it as uh, a not, not-for-profit and so we can we can grow the the program, take it to other places. We're going to also take it to Puerto Rico. We're going to do one clinic while we're there shooting the Caribbean series. But the plan is to grow it and then also 
continue to have a series of books come out of it as well when, when the time is right. Well, you are always welcome on Baseball and Barbecue. You have an open invitation. Anytime you want to promote your book or talk about anything, please, we would love to have you back. So oh, thank that's you. so great. Thanks for having us thank on Baseball and Barbecue. It's so fun. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Jeff and Lynn. We really appreciate it. You guys are great. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks again to Jeff Idelson and Gene Fruth. Len, it was an honor to speak to them. Absolutely. We want to tell you again how to purchase the book. There are two editions. One is signed by Gene, which I believe is $55. The other one is a special edition signed by Gene and a Hall of Famer. Part of those proceeds go to the Umps Care Charities. Now, one of those Hall of Famers is either going to be Hank Aaron, Craig Biggio, Johnny Bench, Wade Boggs, Vladimir Guerrero, Randy Johnson, Tony Perez, Cal Ripken Jr., Pudge Rodriguez, and Ichiro Suzuki, who, by the way, is not a Hall of Famer. Not yet. Yet. (laughs) But I think it's a pretty safe bet that he will be. Barring any unforeseen scandal. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think he will be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, just on Ichiro, the whole thing with the hits, right? Yeah. I mean, he actually is, if you combine the leagues, which... You know, the, the, you can't, but right. I get what you're I saying. Know. He is the ultimate hit leader. Anyway, amazing player. To purchase the book, go to grassrootsbaseball.com and go to the link that says the book and scroll down to buy the book. This is one that you're going to have on your coffee table. Actually, this book is so big it could be a coffee table. It could be like a, <laughs> a Kramer. It's unfelt. All they got to do is put legs on this and you could really use it as a coffee table. But yes. uh, it is really a beautiful book. Yes. What do we have next? Next, we have Aaron Stouffer. Like I said before, he's pitmaster for the barbecue team Man Meat Barbecue. His knowledge of barbecue is impeccable. And what a nice guy, too. I think you guys are really going to enjoy hearing from someone who does barbecue as a hobby, but uh, on weekends. And just gives so much time to competition barbecue and really loves Loves it. Yeah, loves really it. Really loves it. I mean, we love it, but I think he takes it one step further. Right. And, and it was just really nice to uh, to talk to him. Yes. So here is Aaron Stouffer. Baseball and barbecue listeners, we have the distinct pleasure of having with us Aaron Stouffer of Kansas Aaron is the head pitmaster of Man Meat Barbecue. We are friends on Facebook, and hey, if you're friends on Facebook, then you know, then then you're buddies. So, uh, Aaron, we thank you for joining us tonight. We want to hear everything that you're doing in barbecue, and welcome to baseball and BBQ. Well, thanks for having me. So, Aaron, part of the show, yeah. You are you're out of Kansas City, correct? Out of Kansas City. Born and raised. All right. Big barbecue country out there. Uh, some, some would say the best, but, you know, there's, I'm, always, I'm always open to, to the, the, uh, entertaining the argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're certainly not going to argue with you on that one. Uh, tell us about what you're on a, you, your team is Man Meat Barbecue? It is. Okay. Yeah, we, we started, we started, gosh, really... We came up with the name in 2012. Buddies in, uh, of mine, we, you know, I was cooking in my backyard, and and we're big office. You guys watch these sitcoms, um, uh, The Office, right? Maybe. So there was a there was an episode on there where Michael Scott actually burned his foot on a George Foreman. But in that episode, he's out back cooking steaks, and comes in and you know asks asks the office crew who wants it said beef what's for dinner who wants to man me and and it was just a fun play on words that that a buddy of mine and i would go out and play golf and i'd take a baggie of leftover barbecue and and he's like hey wants to pass me some of your man meat and it just became our team name so that was kind of how it got started all right so a competition team how many competitions do you enter during the year this year we cooked thirty-two. Really? Oh. Wow! Yeah, and and so it, this was this was kind of a breakout year for us. Uh, last 
last couple of years we did 14. Career-wise, we've only done 68. So we've done we doubled doubled the number uh, essentially uh, the, the number of uh, cooks we've done just just in one year. Now, for our listeners who aren't familiar with competition barbecue, the teams that do it. Um, they're not really doing it for the prize money. <laughs> they're, it's it's really for the love of, of of barbecue. Am I right, Aaron? Oh, absolutely. There's there's not a it's a pride thing. You know, it's it's where it's where former athletes go to to live out their competitive fire. You know, where where we can can drink beer, eat barbecue, just kind of BS with with a bunch of friends and. And then at the end of the day, throw down and see who has has better food. Now, how about how far do you will you go for a competition? This year, we kind of kind of threw out distance out the window. At the end of the year, we did we did a little bit of chasing the points uh, late. We flew out to North Carolina in November, and then a couple weeks later, drove down to, to Texas to cook, but. We primarily stick around here in the, the Kansas, Missouri area. There's there's just a lot of contests around here that we're fortunate that we don't have to, to drive too far. Right. Well, do, do you compete against basically the same teams, or the the teams change up like at different venues? Well, it depends. I mean, you see a lot of the same same folks at uh, the teams that are that are constantly competing for that team of the year. But there's a lot of new teams. There's a lot of teams out there that'll cook one or two contests a year, and, and you'll only see, you know, of course, only see them, you know, by chance. But you know, for the most part, you'll you'll run into the same five to ten at every contest, and you're always going head to head with with the best. So there's there's no week off that, regardless of where you go, you know, there's there's some great cooks out east. And there's a lot of I mean, there's great cooks everywhere. Now you are you cooking mostly in well I, I it's going to say KCBS competitions again for our listeners not as familiar with competition barbecue KCBS stands for the Kansas City Barbecue Society and they sponsor competitions all throughout the country uh, is that mostly what you're cooking for or uh, some of the other associations So I I cook strictly for KCBS thanks okay. to that Okay. So there's there's several other sanctioning bodies out there, uh, and they follow a lot of the same rules and, and so forth. KCBS is the largest barbecue society in the world. They, I think they're actually up to like 40 different countries now. Wow. Now, Aaron, when you compete, so Jeff and I, uh, we're in New York, and once a year uh, we have a competition. It's in Staten Island, and it's the... Um, it's a KCBS competition. It's not a big competition, but we did go. We went to it, and yeah. So you have some people. Some people are in the. You know, they have their tent set up, and then other people come in the big rigs. Uh, you know, the the big RVs. Are you uh, the RV guy or are you the little tent guy? We are now the RV guy. Did you start as a tent guy, or were you always an RV guy? We we started. In a little pop-up tent, you know, loading everything in the back of the truck, you know, loading it up, unloading it, so strenuous work. But, you know, early on, we were we were doing competitions as, as inexpensively as we could. Again, it was, we were cooking in our backyard, and somebody was like, oh, your food's so good, you gotta, you gotta go compete. And we did, and, and we learned early on that, what we cook in the backyard is a lot different than what uh, we cook. Right. I wanted to ask you about your competitors. Since you mentioned you see the same people at, at all the competitions, I, I assume it's not a, a fierce, oh, I hate these guys competition. Do you guys, uh, someone forgets some type of rub or some type of sauce, do you guys like help each other out? Or is it just, you know what, leave us alone. We're, we're going to kick your butt. It's cutthroat. Come on. <laughs> We're, we're all, I mean, we're friendly with everybody, and, and if anybody needs anything where they're willing to help, there's been times when I've forgotten something, and I would run around to the teams to see if, if they had what I was looking for, and, and I haven't had a, a situation where teams 
had something that they were like, nope, I'm not letting you use it. But, you know, even even then, we're, we're there to, to throw down and, and kick each other's butt. But That's right. But we're also rooting for each other. I mean, I, I want to, every contest that I go to, I want to win. Um, but, you know, it, it's at the same time. There's sometimes you just got to have the stars aligned in the right direction. And, and you know, everybody's putting out good food. It, it's sometimes just, just the luck of, of the draw on what table you hit and how the scores fall. So, so Aaron, take us through it. So you, you work a regular job during the week, or is it any, is your regular job associated with barbecue at all? No, I'm, I'm a, uh, I consult banks, so, so I'm about as far away from barbecue in my, my full-time job as, as you get, and I use all my vacation for barbecue. In fact, I'm, I'm out for the rest of the year, so I, I get to work, work and not take a whole, take any time off here around the holidays. But my week during during barbecue season starts the day I get day after I get back from a comp. So Sunday, I'm I'm generally cleaning my pit, and then Monday, trimming chicken because my trash goes out on Tuesday, and I don't want that in my trash for a week. And then it's every day there's there's a there's something going on throughout the week. Friday, drive set up at a comp. Saturday, cook, break down, go home, do it all over again the following week. What's your grill or smoker of, of choice? Do you use a combination of one depending on what you're going to cook, or do you have a, a special one that you like to use all the time? We use we use uh, four gateway drum smokers, one for each meat, and and so we we made that switch in 2017 when we started introducing uh, the gateway drum to our arsenal and then we fully switched later in that year i used to cook in an, on an offset uh, that was that i built onto a trailer and i i had to babysit that thing so much that i got got tired of not getting any sleep and people around me also got tired of me not getting any sleep so so i cook hot and fast on on the uh the gateway drum and what's what's your specialty? Uh, what's in the uh, in the competition? So you have you have got brisket, chicken, ribs, right? What's uh, there's four? Are there four categories there? Yeah, the, pork is the fourth. Pork, right? Pork, right? Which is your? Uh, what would you say you excel at? Well, we're fourth in ribs currently in the world. So really, say this year the ribs have been our our best category. That's the only one of our categories that, that happened to be in the top 25 this year. Yeah, but that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty, pretty good. Not, not, not too bad. I, we will, we'll take it. Our goal at the really, our, our, you know, when we set out this year cooking, our goal was just to, to make the top 100. And we, we got fortunate early on and won, won our first two contests of the year and just things just started clicking and we just kept rolling and so so it's been it's been a really fun year never thought i'd get in a point chase but uh we we sure found ourselves in one why, why don't you give a shout out to uh who, who's also on your uh, barbecue competition team so my wife is uh christy is is a huge huge part of our team i mean she's she's as involved in the process as i am and that's i mean the the two of us are are the team about 80% of the time. I've got a buddy of mine who helped come up with the team name, uh, John, and he'll come out and, and help run and, and watch our daughter and, and and just make sure things are, are going the way they're supposed to be going and uh, on occasion. But, yeah, it's, we're primarily a husband-wife team. Take the, the two-year-old with us, so she'll be two this year, and take the dog. And so that's, it's, it's a whole family affair. Well, you may have to change the name of the team then to, instead of man, person. Person meat barbecue. <laughs> now, do you do you create your own uh, rubs and, or, and sauces? Or is that, do you have a, yep. a secret go-to go place to get that? So, so we, um, we get all of our rub and sauce outside of what we make, typically at the, the Kansas City Grilling Company here locally. Where we were fortunate enough that uh, early this year they uh, they 
chose to sponsor us as a team. So, so we've been able to build a great relationship there. And, and but yeah, I mean, we get all of our our supplies there. But I mean, we make our own rubs and and our own sauce, and and you know, we'll mix in some other commercial product in with it. But but I mean, the majority of what we use is is homemade. But I mean, that's earlier this year. We started letting a couple other teams use our sauce, and they started winning with it. And in fact, they started beating us with it with our own sauce. Oh wow! And so, yeah, we're we're looking at the process of of bringing that commercially. So hopefully, you know, with with the success we had, hopefully others will have have similar success with it. Yeah, once we can get it out there. You know, Aaron, I'm not I'm not saying you should do this, of course, but when somebody wants to borrow your sauce, if you just happen to have a bowl of it next to like a I don't know, another bowl of ground black pepper and that pepper happens to spill into the sauce and you don't realize it and you lend it to them, I mean it's their fault if they don't taste it first. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, uh, it's, it's, we, we try not to sabotage other teams. No, of course well, not. Well, you know, it, it's funny, though. I mean, you'll you'll ask somebody, oh, what they're doing, and, and the way somebody will, will say it, like, oh, yeah, this is what I do. You know, and they, they kind of have that look in their eye, like, you know, they're just pulling your leg, hoping that you actually do it. And, you know, so there, there's a lot of trying to read between the lines, you know, out there, knowing what is truly helpful and, and what is being said as a joke, you know, so that they, you know, keep you on your toes and, mm-hmm. and you know, no one's going to give away all their secrets so much you pay them for it. So, Aaron, now you have, so you've got your sauces, you've got rubs, you're doing great in the competitions. Is there any, uh, is there any thinking that maybe this could lead to, I don't know, maybe a restaurant, a stand? I mean, catering, you know, maybe. Yeah, I mean, right. Aaron Franklin uh, started with a little, uh, little nothing and now you know he's Aaron Franklin I mean who knows what what's what's next for you or is this just purely hobby and and no idea of taking it further well at this point it is purely hobby you know it's cooking just just because we enjoy it and and you know one thing that you know I in college I worked in a restaurant and I don't know that I'd ever want to run a restaurant, and just the it's just a different world there, and it's amazing that the people who do it. I mean, it's it's awesome that they're that they do it because because you know once you start pulling behind the curtain, it can push you down the path of losing that passion that you started with. You know when you when it becomes your job, but at, at some point, you know my my thought was my retirement plan was was get a little uh, food truck and go cook some barbecue and set up in a parking lot and and once I'm out of food go home and take a nap and that was my that was my <laughs> retirement plan but I'm I'm several years away from that but you know I, I still have that aspiration that I'll be be running a food truck in retirement but probably not before that so everybody take a look at the website it's called therealmanmeatbbq.com has plenty of pictures on there so take a look at what t- the type of food that Aaron and his, his team, his wife Christy, cooks. Uh, what type of equipment they use. Pictures of the daughter, very cute. And the dog, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the dog just sits there waiting like, can oh. you please drop something? <laughs> oh, yeah. there's You know, during turn-ins, you know, meat goes flying all over the place. And uh, it, it's helpful having a dog because it gets cleaned up pretty quickly. Right. So, Aaron, being from Kansas, you mentioned in just before we went on that you are a Royals fan, and that kind of hurt Jeff. He, it, you know, we we still uh, we're still hurting from 2015 when the Royals beat the Mets in the World Series. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the image that lives in everybody's mind is Osmer uh, running home on Buda, you know, with the play at first and, and it's kind of the image that that stands out probably as the, the biggest image of that whole series but uh, I mean it was a fantastic run I mean that was a great team to go 2014 and 15 uh, to the series 
you know, something that, that Kansas City was was dying for, for for many, many years and and so so happy to be part of that. So uh, what do you think of the Royals' chances this year? They have a new manager. I'm not sure of the makeup of the club they have. I think uh, Salvatore Perez was injured last year. He's coming back. Yeah. What other? Uh, what do you expect from the from the Royals? They're in a, I guess I would say a winnable division. I mean, the Cleveland took a step back. Chicago's on the up and coming. Yeah, you've got the Twins. The you Twins. Know, the, the Twins. You just hit so many home runs. I don't know. I I'm just hopeful that we don't come in last. You know, we didn't even win 60 games this year, and that's that's a that's a tough season. You know, and and it's it kind of kind of felt like the the years past. You know, the 90s and the early 2000s when you know we're just constantly just in the bottom part of the league over our division. You know, I think we were battling Baltimore for the, the worst record for a long time. It's amazing. It takes a team a long time to turn it around and, and get into a position where they can win a World Series. I mean, look at the Mets in 2015. We didn't win the World Series. and then, then But then it's very easy to just go down. It's it's hard to stay at the top. You know, unless you're the Yankees. You can, you can buy the way there. <laughs> right. you can, yeah, the Yankees, Dodgers, you know, they, right. they can just Unlimited bankroll, it seems. Right. I mean, Kansas City, you had two years, right? So you went to the World Series. You, yeah, they, they ran into a buzzsaw right. in Bat- Madison Bumgarner in 2014, mm-hmm. and they took it out on our Mets. Right. Uh, you know it was a cl- you know what? It was a close series, though. It wasn't a blowout. It no. wasn't the... Uh, I think there was one game that there was a, a lopsided, but other than that, it was a close series that Kansas City just happened to win. Well, the Mets... Yeah. The Mets weren't really expected to even get that far that right. year. right. I mean, it was, yeah, I'm here. I, I had to take a drink of water. Uh, I mean, it was, um, you know, what, but once the Mets got there, though, I mean, it was it was talking that, you know, the Mets were going to be the, the awesome favorite against the Royals. Uh, you know, and that was, that was the expectation mm. once, once the series came in. But, you know, there was, there was just some connection in that, that 2015 team that, you know, it, it I think it's just, it doesn't matter the sport when you've got a, a team that's so cohesive. It is really a it's a singular team. There's not a singular person on the team, but you know it, it lives and breathes together as one. I mean, and that was that team. They they went three years to the playoffs. I mean, they they made it back in '16, but not they didn't make it very far. But I mean, it was it was fun, and and you know there's a lot of a lot of great guys on that team. There's a lot of great guys on that, that Mets team that, I mean, they're still doing very well in the league. It's just, you start breaking up that core, it's hard to rebuild. It, it definitely is. And as, as you know, once they these guys get to, you know, that magical free agency, the, the money stumps coming in. You know, you had Hosmer go and Moustakis go. And that's, that's it. They were the heart of the team. Yeah. But, you know what? Getting a World Series in this day and age is right. a great accomplishment. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, against you know, especially when you have to compete against the Dodgers and, and the Yankees. Yeah. To, to do it right. I mean, you know, they, you're already against against the odds because they're they're paying unlimited amounts of money for the absolute best talent. Right. Look, look at the Garrett Cole uh, signing that the Yankees just did. There was no way Kansas yeah. City would have been able to to do that so what, what, a lot of teams couldn't have done that no and one of the things on my, on my bucket list and I think on Lens also is getting to Kansas City going to uh, Kauffman Stadium and then uh, going to the the Negro League Museum uh, right. in, in Kansas City yeah have you been there uh, Aaron have you been to the Negro League's Baseball Museum I have it's, it's a fantastic place there's and then of course you got you got the yeah I mean just the stadium just in general, with the work that they did when they hosted that 2012 All Star Game, I mean it's it's a it's a wonderful stadium. But uh, there's there's a lot of baseball history here, not as much as there is in New York. But well, no, well, one of my favorite one of my favorite images was George Brett hitting that home <laughs> run and then going crazy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> At least you know what I've seen interviews with him these days. He's, at least he's able to poke fun of himself. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I've I've heard him speak. He's talked about that many times. 
Um, oh, and there was there was the uh, I, I think he just did a, a little parody video about that that whole thing not long ago. Right. Well, Aaron, we want to thank you very much for coming on. It's great to speak to you. If we're ever in Kansas City, we will look you up. And, well, he uh, might not be here. He might be on the road, you know, <laughs> cooking somewhere. He'll make sure he's on the road if, if, he, if he knows we're coming. Yeah, but. you know what? There's a KCBS <laughs> competition in Staten Island. Come on over here. Yeah, I think... <laughs> it's a little cool, though, in New York when they do that's that. That's true. But you know what, Aaron? I, I have a funny feeling you would win it. <laughs> I don't think you'd have much difficulty winning it. First of all, there's not a lot of teams in it. But they do come from around. They, we had, yeah, uh, they do. They from, oh, that's uh, right. Canada. Canada. Yeah. Canada. Yeah. Actually, the, it's funny because the guys from, I think the guys from Canada were actually using the uh, the, the gateway drums. Right. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I don't doubt it. I mean, there's it's uh, perhaps one of the most popular pits. It's, it's inexpensive, easy to move around. And, uh, I mean, it's it's the way to go if you're if you're just getting in and, and want to be serious and and don't want to spend a ton of money right. it's a great fit to have but yes yeah, the, the team that took second in that that contest uh actually i, I loaned loaned my pits in the 2018 american royal the top gun barbecue they, they're like from jersey there but he came he came to the american royal in 2018 and cooked with with a, a chef there that was in New York with uh, Blue Smoke, Blue Smoke Barbecue. Oh, Blue Smoke! Yeah, they have a uh, concession at, Ch- at City Field. Right. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he used he used to be the executive chef there, but yeah, he they borrowed borrowed my pits, and they did pretty well. I think they took like like twenty eight, and out of the the, the the competition that they cooked at here in the, the Royal, they did, did very well. And I think that was that was the Blue Smoke guy's first contest. Really? I mean, classically trained chef, but first first barbecue competition, and did pretty well. And and I'm I'm assuming that part of that, since it was your pit, is that was this the seasoning. The it was a well seasoned pit, and that probably helped, right? <laughs> no, I, it, it was clean. I, oh, it was. I, yeah, I clean those things down to bare metal every week. Really. Yeah, there's yeah, there's there's a misnomer out there, and that a a seasoned pit with a bunch of creosote is you know pit barbecue, and and I you don't get to control your flavor if you if you've got a dirty pit. Mm. Yeah, well, I, we have uh, pit barrels, so it's not a gateway, but it's the same kind of concept, right, with the drum, yeah. and yeah, I, I clean it out, but probably not, you know not. Not probably as well as you clean yours, though. <laughs> I know I don't. <laughs> <laughs> there, there aren't a whole lot. I mean, I, I they look pretty close to, to looking like they haven't been used from the on the inside after I get done with them. So it's uh, they're pretty clean after contact. Nice. All right. Well, again, Aaron, we could I, we could talk to you for hours, actually, right. but uh, we we can't because. It's late here, and we have to go to sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. Right. Thank you. And, uh, you know, love, love uh, you know, the podcast that I've listened to. I've, I've really enjoyed. And Thank you. I know you guys, are your, your following is growing, and, and so uh, look forward to your guys' success as well. So, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Um, and thanks for having me as, as part, of, uh, part of your show. So, so Our pleasure. Thank you, Aaron Stouffer. As we always like to say, once you appear on our on our podcast, you are a friend of the show for life. So thank you, friend Aaron Stouffer. And especially, we'd like to thank Gary Mack for use of his studio. Gary, we appreciate everything you do for us. You know that. So thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. And now, Jeff, Yes. this is episode 50. Yes. So, in honor of episode 50, yes. we would like to look at some players, baseball players, who have worn number 50. So, can you give us some, some of the well-known baseball players that have worn number 50? Well-known? Well I don't know about that. I can tell you off the top of my head. Sid Fernandez wore number 50. Knew that one because yeah, he, he wore that because of uh, where he's from, Hawaii. Right, and he was a Met. Right. Same, same thing with Benny Agbanyani. 
So he was a Met, so I knew he wore number 50. Right. Some other number 50s, and most of these were pitchers. Charlie Morton, recently of the Astros, now of the Rays. You have, uh, back in the day, Kent Merker of the Braves wore number 50. Janie Moyer of the Phillies and other teams, he wore number 50. One guy, remember this guy, J.R. Richard? He was he was a fantastic pitcher. Yeah. Uh, he was with the Astros back in the 80s. Adam Wainwright you heard of, obviously with the Cardinals. One of my favorite pitchers, Dontrell Willis, when he was with the Reds, he only he was with the Reds for one year. He wore number fifty. He was originally with the Marlins, then went to Detroit, and then played for uh, Long Island Ducks for a while. And one of the great names in baseball, not a great player, but one of the great names, Frank Francisco of the Rangers. He also won number fifty. But number fifty is really one of those numbers where not a lot of famous players wear them. No. <laughs> And, and wait till we get to episode 100. We won't be able to do this at all. <laughs> right. 99 we do. There's 199 yes. that we know is pretty good. I, although, you know, the way the Yankees retire numbers, they they might be the one team that gets go, to... Go triple digit. Right. yes. <laughs> right. But by then, maybe they'll have someone. Yes. Jeff, we're about to end episode 50. We just had episode 49, which was our anniversary special. Now we've got episode 50. That makes which, sense. 49, then 50. I'm following. Go ahead. <laughs> which, which was huge. Great interviews. Jeff Idelson, Gene Fruth, Aaron Stouffer. Had a lot of fun. And now it's time to say goodbye. Looking forward to seeing you again for episode 51. Same here. Greetings from Cooperstown and the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, where the heartbeat of our national pastime beats the strongest and the loudest every day of the year. Our hats tonight go off to Friends of Baseball in the Pacific Northwest for all that you're doing to support youth baseball in your area through scholarship, through leadership, through equipment donations, and through field maintenance, all very important aspects to helping our national pastime succeed and grow. So on behalf of the staff of the Baseball Hall of Fame and all the Hall of Fame members, congratulations and wishing you a wonderful evening.